So, well, good morning. Thanks for showing up. Good to see everybody. We are, uh, actually, we're, I think this is the last lesson of this series we call Fully Man. And what we've been, what we've been trying to do here is uh, give a, a full overview of uh, what the scripture says about the question, what does it mean to be a human being? Uh, <clears throat> and along the way, we've discovered that uh, for most of us, our humanity, because, of, because sin came into the world, our humanity is sort of broken. Well, not sort of. It's broken. So we're, one way of saying that is we're, we're not quite as fully human as we could be. Uh, and what you have in Jesus, uh, the Son of God incarnate as a man, is uh, something like a fully realized man. We would say he's perfect man, where we would say you and I are not perfect human beings. So uh, what that means is up until now, Jesus is the sole, the only case of a fully realized human human being. Uh, now, what we want to talk about today is sort of, as the last lesson, what are we looking forward to in our humanity? Uh, and uh, how does that uh, how does that affect how we live as human beings now in a human society? Uh, so, uh, when we notice, first of all, that Jesus is the, for the, the only case of a fully re- realized human being, one of the things we might notice about him is he experienced the resurrection. And uh, in Colossians, he's called the firstborn from the dead. Now, that indicates uh, some more resurrection to come. In fact, the New Testament is quite clear about this and indicates that our fully realized humanity in the future is in uh, resurrection. So I just want to look at some of these texts. Uh, one of the one of the ways contemporary Christianity frames the idea of the hope of Christianity is we say something like this: Do you want to go to heaven when you die? Well, one of the things we might want to notice, well, there's no might about it. One of the things we really need to notice is that going to heaven when you die is not the end of the story. In fact, uh, when you go to heaven, when you die, your body does not go with you. Uh, But your body is coming back. So the final hope of the Christian is not in going to heaven when I die, but in uh, being raised from the dead. So you can see this in a lot of places, but we need to be clear. Uh, Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The reference is is there in the handout, Philippians chapter 1. In another place he says, uh, it's good to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To be present with the Lord, of course, is 
salvation. And one of the things we've been noticing in our study of the book of John is uh, its, its fellowship with God is, is the thing that Christ has purchased for us on the cross. Uh, so to have that fellowship with God even more so after death is a great promise, but it's not the end of the story. And so I've given a couple of references here. First Thessalonians chapter four. That's the story where, uh, or that's the uh, section where Paul talks about what will happen when Christ returns and the dead in Christ are raised first, and then those who are alive and remain follow, and will go up to meet Christ in the air. Uh, that event we commonly call the rapture. Uh, and so there's a resurrection at that time. If we were to read <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, which is referenced in the next uh, point in the outline here, <clears throat> we'd uh, read uh, about the statement. It says something like, uh, we will we'll not all be raised, but we'll all be changed. There's a... There's a transformation, there's a resurrection even for those who haven't died uh, at that time when in Christ's return. In Revelation 21 and 22, that's the very end of the story. And so people are raised. Uh, in fact, everyone is raised. Their physical bodies raised. Some are raised to uh, life in the eternal kingdom. And some are raised to judgment. Uh, so uh, our point here is our, it's at that moment that a Christian will realize humanity as God intends fully realized uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 it's uh, you know Paul makes a statement the, this mortal must put on immortality The body we're living in today is subject to death. Following the resurrection, the bodies we live in then will be, it's the same body, but it's been raised and is no longer subject to death. <clears throat> and uh, so our mortal has put on immortality. First uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, this is the text that I refer to almost every time I open my mouth. 1 John 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not uh, know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So here John is referencing this same transformation at the return of Christ. And uh, that is a transformation of resurrection of this mortal putting on immortality. Whether a believer has died or not, they will be raised at that time. Uh, <clears throat> in Romans 8, we read something more about this. 
which I think we talked about last time even. Romans 8, 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved so the idea here is there's a it's not just humanity not just people that are broken by sin but the very creation the fabric of creation is broken in uh, and subject to corruption Uh, but we here we are pictured as eagerly awaiting for adoption and yet, we already possess adoption. Uh, so, here he's referring to something like the fulfillment of uh, current possession. You see this a lot in the New Testament with reference to the future. Certain things we possess, we will more fully possess in the future. So, for example, the scripture in Ephesians 2 says we have been raised. God has raised us in Christ. You read something similar in Romans 6. Uh, We died with Christ and we've been raised in Christ. Yet we haven't all the way, we haven't experienced everything there is to experience about that uh, resurrection. And so we're looking forward to it while possessing it. Uh, Romans 8.29 We read this, For those whom he foreknew, he is God in this case, he also predestined. Now what are Christians predestined to? It's a very good idea whenever you see the word predestined in the Bible that you ask who and to what. Because the very nature of the word predestined is to give something or someone a destiny. (laughs) So what is the destiny to which we have been predestined? It is to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. So, uh, what is the hope of the Christian life? That we will realize our full humanity in the same way that Jesus realizes his full humanity in resurrection. Uh, So, uh, we have the 
revelation from God of the glory of humanity in the resurrection. What that means is we now, in our risen bodies, walk in open, uninhibited, unhindered fellowship with God. And we uh, reflect that reality perfectly into the created order. Uh, And uh, creation itself is pictured in Scripture in Revelation in particular as being, as experiencing a resurrection. So things broke when Adam sinned, things are restored in Christ. And not just us, everything uh, experiences this resurrection. So we might say, uh, well, okay, that's what I'm looking forward to, but what about now? And I guess one way of framing what it means to live as a Christian in the world is to pay this forward. To say, I'm a recipient of this resurrection. I'm paying that forward in real life now. And so we see this in 1 John chapter 3, that text we already read. When we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And then it goes on in verse 3 to say, And everyone who has this hope, this future, everyone who has this hope purifies himself now. Uh, And so we can see that this reality of seeing Christ and being transformed by seeing Christ, to become like Christ by seeing Christ, well, that's something we can experience to some degree even now. And if our hope is in the full experience of that, well, we want whatever we can get of that already. So I, I need to know Christ. In fact, isn't that what Paul says in Philippians? The, the supreme value. There is nothing more important or more valuable than fellowship with Christ, to know Christ. Everything else compared to that is trash, Paul says. So when we have, when we understand, oh, in Christ, I will be the real full on version of myself. I will be a fully realized person, human human being. Whenever I see Christ, and then the scripture tells me I can see Christ. Now, not like I will then, but I can see him now. And if that's the best thing that could happen to me, and I could have some of that now, that's what I want now. So whoever has this hope, John says, purifies himself. He doesn't wait to purify himself. He does what can be done now. And so we can pay forward the resurrection that we're looking forward to. Ephesians 2, we already referenced, it talks about us as that that God has raised us in Christ. We're simply waiting for the fulfillment of that reality. So let's take a look at that. Let's see where that ends up. Two questions. 
Okay. The paying forward, <clears throat> is that for self or is that for others? I, I don't see a necessary distinction. Yes. I don't see how you would pay forward this hope of being like Christ without becoming radically loving toward everyone around you. I mean, that's kind of how... How would you imitate Christ? You would become a sacrificial, loving person. And you would see the, the joy of being a sacrificial person for the benefit of others. Okay. And the second question is, what you explained about fellowshipping with Jesus, how should we contrast that with fellowshipping with God? In the context of it's via Jesus mm-hmm. going to God. So if, if fellowshipping with Jesus is all that, okay, cool. How do we look at them fellowshipping with God? By fellowshipping with Jesus. So it's by extension then? We look that's, at that's, I think exactly what Jesus means when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except mm-hmm. through me. There's no way, we have no way of relating to God as our Father except in relation to Christ. Uh, so, the, yeah, again, uh, what we're going to talk about tomorrow, in fact, is Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How do I see God? I see Christ. That's how. Um, okay, so uh, if we look at Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, notice he says we were dead, in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. That is a aorist past tense verb something that has occurred. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heaven. Seated, not will see. Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. These things are so certain they can be referred to as though they've already occurred. Uh seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he may show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. You could say his project. His new creation. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is uh, the same reflected resurrection life we are called to in this text that we are called to in 1 John chapter 3 when it says if you have this hope, you get as much of it as you can get as soon as you can get it. We're called here to live in the resurrection reality which we are looking forward to 
in fulfillment. Uh, Romans 6, same kind of story. Uh, This is where Paul deals with the question, so if grace abounds whenever sin abounds, maybe we should sin more in order that grace may abound. And Paul says, that's stupid. But he doesn't say, to get you to realize how stupid that is, don't you know the rules? That's not what he says. What he says is, don't you know the reality of your new life in Christ? That's what he says. So he talks about you've been baptized into his death. You were buried with him into his death in order that just as Christ was raised, this is verse 4, from the dead by the glory of the fathers, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So, later he says this, uh, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also. So you also. Uh, So he makes this case in your union with Christ. You were present in the crucifixion, in the judgment of God. So you, in union with Christ, died with Christ, you were raised with Christ. We're simply waiting for the fulfillment of that reality. Meanwhile, don't forget who you are. Don't forget. Sin is the thing you don't want to do. Only foolish people want to sin. Whenever I want to sin, I am being foolish in the extreme. Uh, And so he says, why would you do that if you don't have to? And he says, live in this resurrection life. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. What an expression. Alive to God in Christ. This is just what we were just talking about, Malcolm. Uh, In Christ, I am alive to God. (laughs) Resurrected already and fully resurrected is my future. Fully realized, perfected humanity is my future. So he says, So let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members, your body, to sin for unrighteousness as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Sin is not, sin will no, sorry, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So sin's not my king anymore. Apart from Christ, sin's my king. I'm in the dominion of sin. 
I'm under it. Now I'm free from that. I've changed my citizenship. I'm alive to God in Christ. So Paul says, pay it forward. (laughs) Take the resurrection that you possess. Live in the reality of the resurrection that one day you will fully experience. So, our full humanity is realized in the resurrection. And the extent to which I can realize that now, the more the better. So I follow Christ, I trust in Christ, I walk in Christ, I love my neighbor as God has loved me, I want to reflect, I want to live in the likeness of God and so bear the image of God. All these things we've been talking about all this whole time, those things, I can grow into those things even now. So what am I waiting for? That's the thing we're looking at here. The then and there, the promise of the resurrection, has a here and now. There's an already and there's a not yet. And we're in between. So how do we want to live in society, in the human society, in the culture, here and now? Does the Bible, here's some questions. Does the Bible call us to transform human society? To prepare for Christ's return? According to the kingdom now, theology is. <laughs> That's right, yeah. There, there are people who believe it does. I can't read the Bible and come to that conclusion. Uh, the Bible calls us to expect that transformation only by the return of Christ. So there's a strain in Christian, in Christian theology that's very, very old that says what we should do is make society fit for the return of Christ, and that's when he will return. <laughs> I think by now we should have figured out how well that's going to work out, but... Uh, I think with the Bible. Living as a Christian, don't we change society? Well, to some degree, but we're not going to we're not going to make society Christian. Well, that we have not director job the last two thousand years. I would argue that you're yeah. right about that, and we're doing so, a worse job now. Absolutely. So uh, instead, we expect Christ Himself to bring the kingdom that transforms human society. And even then, people will rebel against that. But, uh, anyway, so does the Bible call That's one question. What is the biblical expectation of cultural progress in the human race? About the first question, the, the question is set up to answer no, but how would you word then that which the Bible do? Call us well, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to answer. I'm going to answer that question as we go. What it, what relationship are we called to have with the human cultures and societies? Yeah, but shouldn't we, as Christians, try to lead a little bit more than we are? Well, I hope to answer that question. <laughs> we're, we're going to proceed now. I'm going to answer that question. I, I guess my, my answer is yes, we are. Okay, we are well, let's see what we find out. 
So, uh, so uh, what is the I'm, my the question we're asking now is, what does the Bible expect from human culture, the world's culture? Does it expect progress? The answer to that question is clearly no. The Bible does not expect the world to become godly. If that were possible, we wouldn't need Jesus. Uh, so the clear expectation, I would just read the book of Revelation. Where does human culture end up? It ends up rebelling against God. Well, here's the thing about human cultures. They always have ended up there. In fact, they've started from there. They start from there, they end up there. Human cultures, just apart from Christ, now, this is what we're talking about, they tend to uh, decline. We might say the Bible's expectation is that progress in human culture will come and go. It'll be spotty. Uh, So we could see great cultures rise, even do a lot of good in the world, and then they stop rising, and they go, they get ingrown, and they collapse on themselves, and all kinds of crazy things happen. So it might be a little up and down. But the Bible's solution to human problems is not human societies figuring out solutions to their problems. That's never the Bible's solution. Even Israel, God's chosen people, if we examine their history, it's like a roller coaster. And like all roller coasters, while it goes up and down, the overall trajectory must be downward. Uh, And where does Israel end up? Set aside for the time being. Now all this is in the plan of God. There's no worry. We don't have to get all freaked out about it. In fact, one of the things we should learn this morning is we don't have to get freaked out about the direction of the cultures and societies in which we live. Now, that is not the same as saying do nothing. And we'll get to that, okay? I just want to set the expectation. God doesn't call us to make the world Christian, except by preaching the gospel and seeing who takes it. God doesn't call us, God doesn't expect the world to become righteous, except by the transforming work of Christ in individual persons. So, so in that case, he does call for us to go out. Yeah, which we're coming to. So, I'm, I know I'm going too slow, but let me, <laughs> let me keep going. So what are some of the biblical parameters for Christians in relating to the human societies and cultures in which they live? So, what, the starting point here I have is Romans 13. And Romans 13 poses an interesting problem for uh, people living, as we do in the world today, in democratic societies. Because we end up on both sides of the story in Romans 13. Here's what it says. Let every person be subject 
to the governing authorities. I'd like you to bear in mind who the governing authorities were when this was written. They were not nice to Christians. Uh, And they, yeah, in general, they were tyrannical. So, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So, even the emperor of Rome was instituted by God. So, okay. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists God, whom God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear from the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. In other words, because it's the right thing to do. Because of this, you pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Uh, now, that seems like kind of a harsh thing to write to Roman Christians in the time this was written. And yet, that's what Paul says. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, now here's the thing. In this day and age, we are to one degree or another on both sides of this issue. We are subject to the authority and we have some of it. Because in our societies here and now, we are voters. When you vote, you're on the authority side of this equation. Whatever the law is, you're on the subject side. Well, that puts us in a very interesting position. What should we do? Well, first of all, this is quite clear. Obey the law. Even laws you disagree with, you're called upon to obey. Uh, At the same time, you may have some influence on what the law is. How should you exercise that? Well, you should exercise that for righteousness sake, it seems to me. You should seek justice. You should, you should do whatever you can in whatever position you have. Certainly when you go to vote, ask the question, what is the best way to promote righteousness in human society? Now, that's a very different thing from seeking power. There's people who engage in society to, to seek power. Uh, when we engage in society, now we're talking about governing and legal systems and laws. 
We are not here to seek power. Jesus does the opposite of seeking power. We should uh, seek righteousness. That means I'm not voting for my benefit. I'm voting for righteousness in the society. Now that, I'm sorry, that really doesn't help you very much. That's a hard thing to figure. But you, we are called upon to do the best we can. So uh, it's not about getting power. It's about getting righteousness. We want just societies as much as we can get them. But we should not get our hopes too, set too high. <laughs> We're going to get disappointed by the world's governing authorities. But to whatever extent we can influence them for righteousness' sake, well, of course we should. Uh, if we looked at 1 Timothy chapter, uh, I'm sorry, it's chapter 2. I left this chapter out of the reference in your hand out there. It's 1 Timothy 2. Here's the, I think I probably should have talked about this first because I really think this is the main way Christians should engage in culture. Paul says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So here's maybe the main thing we could do for the world, pray. Paul says pray four different ways here. Pray, intercede, give thanks, make supplications. Pray, 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 pray. You cannot pray too much for everyone. And he literally says pray for everyone. And then he says even kings. So whatever you're feeling toward whoever's currently in charge of everything, of things, pray for that guy. Pray for him. And this gives us some kind of hint about what to pray for. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. In other words, if I wanted to pray for the president, what I would pray is that he would come to genuine faith in Christ if he hasn't already. And I can't really tell, but that's what I pray for. No matter who the president is, that's the thing I want. That's the thing I'm told here God wants. So I'm sure he wants me to pray for that. So uh, pray. <laughs> and I, I noticed something recently in this text that I don't think I'd noticed before because this translation says kings and all who are in high positions. So we're not just talking about political positions of political influence. We're also talking about positions of any kind of influence, uh, cultural influence. So who do I want to pray for? I want to pray for movie producers. I'm telling you, man, some of the stuff we've learned about the character of some of these guys recently <laughs> is shocking. These, these people need the Savior. Uh, so 
what's the influence I can have? Well, I'm never going to meet any of those people, but I can pray. I can pray for anyone from anywhere. This might be the main thing. I certainly wouldn't want to engage in any political actions until I've done this. (laughs) Or without doing this constantly while doing that. Here's the thing about engaging in politics. It's uh, it always comes with the temptation to pursue power instead of righteousness. And you can see why, because maybe the best way to pursue righteousness is to have some power. Could be. Uh, I don't, I, it's very difficult for me to trust myself to make those judgments very wisely. I better pray. Even when I go to vote, we don't get, uh, well, we get some easy choices, but we get a lot of very impossible choices. It is really hard to know which of, you know, now I'm voting between two people. Which of those is better for the promotion of righteousness? Sometimes that it's crystal clear. In fact, I guess I think it gets more and more clear every time we have an election. But uh, sometimes, I don't know. Who's in charge of all this governing authority? What did we read in Romans 13? Where does it come from? Who finally elects the President of the United States or the Prime Minister of the Netherlands or the government of Bonaire, who ultimately chooses God. God. So he's the one we should talk to first and most. Now we can talk in our, we should talk in our societies to help people understand what is right. People do not understand what is right. Have you noticed that? They just make it up. They figure out what they want, and then they figure out how to call that right. And figuring out what you want doesn't take a lot of figuring, does it? So we need to be in the society. The so- well, let's say it like this. We don't need anything. We have it all already. But the society is suffering, real human suffering, because they don't know what's right. So to whatever extent we can make a case for what's right, for what's just, we should, we should love our neighbor. <laughs> That's really what it boils down to. Pray for cultural leaders and everyone else. Pray that they'll submit to Christ. That, by the way, is a work of the Holy Spirit. They can't do it on their own. We should ask God to do it. Preach the gospel. That's the next thing. Preach the gospel. Again, these are in no particular order. I could have started with this, right? That means announce the good news that God has reconciled anyone who believes in Christ to himself by the sacrifice of Christ. Here's what I want to say. It's better to preach the gospel than to preach the law. Now, what I just told you is to go around preaching the law. I don't know if you noticed, but that's what I just told you. 
go around telling people what's right because they don't know and they need to know. It would benefit them to live according to what's actually right instead of their foolish made-up ideas about it. But here's the thing about the church. What we should do is we should always preach the law in order to preach the gospel. Anytime you preach the law, it should ultimately have the effect of frustrating whoever you're talking to because the law is impossible. If it's true, if people really understand what righteousness really requires, they will throw up their hands in defeat. And that is the place of the gospel. So we preach the law, not ultimately not to change society, but to get people to need Christ. Now, when people receive Christ, that'll probably have another effect on society. In the end, Christ will come and make it all right anyway. Uh, So we don't really preach the law to reform the world. We preach the law to preach the gospel. And when I tell people what's right, I need to set my expectations. (laughs) Many of us have had children. Well, there's a group of people. You tell them what's right. You tell them what's right, that's right, that's wrong. Do this, don't do that. How's it work out? Well, imbalance pretty good if you do a good job of it. But... Here's one thing you can count on. Whatever you tell them is the right thing to do, they will try not doing it. And whatever you tell them is the wrong thing to do, they'll try it just to see what they think. That we all have our own judgment. And so we need to be realistic when we preach righteousness in the world. We should not expect the world's people to behave like Christians. Even us Christians are not very good at behaving like Christians. So, and we have the Spirit and the Word. And we're, you know, maybe a little better at it than the world is. So we want to encourage it. We want to talk about it. We want to tell everyone. Sure, absolutely. But I don't want to get my hopes set too high. My hope is in Christ, not the transformation of society apart from Christ. Uh, so, the world, <laughs> the world has always been in the devil's handbasket. Uh, we, we have this expression in English. I don't know if you, guys, if you other guys have this expression. We'll say something like, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And that's the, an expression we use to describe the madness. From, in my mind, the madness is as mad as it's ever been right now. It's mad, mad. Uh, and so I could use this expression, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Well, here's the thing. Paul said the same thing. And it's always been true. And it will remain true. And the world is going to end up in the devil's handbasket. Just read the book of Revelation. You'll see it. It's plain as day there. 
And so we might pull back on the reins on that some. That'd be good. We want to love the people around us. So they need to know what's right. We should tell them. Uh, But it needs Christ. And Christ will be the solution. We want to demonstrate redeemed society in the fellowship of the church. This is very important. What's our influence in the world? The scripture says, Jesus said, this is how they'll know you're my disciples if you love each other. The most important relationship in terms of human society that we have is our relationships within the church demonstrating what's possible to people who are outside the church. It's not that we come in here and love each other and nobody sees it. Not at all. But that love we share, that we get from him, uh, is one of the principal things that that might influence the people around us. And of course, we're not discriminating. Love is not discriminating. So, It's not telling me, well, I need to love my brothers in Christ at the expense of loving anyone else. No. Or more or better. No. It's just saying the significance of that relationship because what we're demonstrating in the life of the church is a human society. And this human society that is drawing down the benefits of the resurrection life into the present world. And so we bring the benefits of the present life into our fellowship with each other, and that has an influence on the world around us. They'll know we are Christians by our love. Uh, That means we're people who sacrificially take care of each other and anyone else We're people who sacrificially take care of each other and anyone else. We're not demanding moralists. I'm happy to tell you what's right and what's wrong. And I also am the person who understands better than you how impossible it will be for you to do what's right and not do what's wrong. And I have great sympathy for you (laughs) unbeliever because I know the love of Christ and so I think well I can tell you what's right and what's wrong and I can also tell you you're going to fail and you need a savior so we demonstrate this love inside the body and that shows outside the body Psalm 20 says some trust, some trust in chariots and horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. This tells me ultimately I'm calling upon God. I'm looking to God in Christ. That doesn't mean I don't have any chariots and horses. It just means that's not my final resting place. Uh, many great armies have been defeated by other armies that should not have defeated them. We don't want to 
misplace our trust, our hope. We want our hope not to be in this or that arrangement of society, but in the arranger of societies, the Lord. Uh, So for now, what we do now is serve now, rule later. Serve now, rule later. And even then, I think ruling isn't quite what we imagine it to be because of what Jesus said about we don't do any lording. (laughs) It's hard for me to figure out how any ruling can happen without lording, but, you know. It's written that he will rule the nation to define himself. Yeah, right. So he will rule. Uh, but in any case, our calling now is serve. And then finally, I just want to say this. When we communicate the word of God, either law or gospel, and I think maybe you've seen this morning, I'm saying you, you, you communicate both. You communicate law in order to communicate gospel. Gospel's the final word. But when we're doing that, we need to understand the cultural context in which we're operating. But here's the thing a lot of Christians do. They overdo it. When we talk about putting the gospel in a cultural context, there's a lot of wrecking of the gospel that happens when people are trying to put it in a cultural context. So you've got to do your best to distinguish between your culture's values and biblical righteousness. Uh, and it's, that is, I'm, I mean, I can say that to you. And it's, it's almost impossible. Because your cultural idea of what is righteous is deeply ingrained. I remember I went to Nigeria where, you know, it's a whole other culture from the one I grew up in. And they're constantly negotiating over everything. It's all, life is a game in which you're trying to negotiate for advantage. I, you know, it was like a fish out of water. Uh, And in that context, things that in my culture would be considered stealing were not considered stealing there. Now, I can't make myself think those things are not stealing. They are stealing. I can't say otherwise. Uh, But uh, it's a... Yeah. So where does righteousness come in? Well... In the end, I'm trying to operate according to Scripture. By the way, everyone here already knows this, but having experience in another culture is extremely helpful with this. You start to see what parts of your ethical framework are, for me, are American, and which parts are not (laughs) and you start to have a little when the fish gets out of the water he starts to understand what it means to be wet and he starts thinking well is that biblical like when I had this experience in Africa I had to stop and think 
What does the scripture teach? What is biblical righteousness? And how is that distinguished from uh, my American Protestant ethics? They're, they're distinguishable. Uh, and the challenge you get by being, by putting yourself in, a, in another culture really helps you sort that out. So here in this room, we're kind of at an advantage here. It's, it's actually, uh, we're in a slightly better position to try to distinguish between my culture's values and biblical righteousness. Okay, that's my whole list. That is a long list. I hope you can see that what I'm trying aiming at here is something you could call balance. We can't, uh, we don't, well, we could. I don't think we want to disengage from the world. In fact, Jesus says quite explicitly in the book of John, left us in the world on purpose. God is perfectly capable of converting whoever he needs converted without us. He leaves us in the world on purpose. In his plan of things, this is his way. And so we're here. Our main mission, of course, is to announce the good news. That is the thing. That is the thing. That is the key to this resurrection life we have in the future, is for people to come to know Christ. Also, we are living in the world. And Jesus said, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. We have to realize our situation. We have to understand the people we're dealing with and that we know the thing itself and they don't. This is a, we're in a position to be, to have a great deal of compassion and sympathy for lost people. I find it's very easy for me to get righteous with lost people. I don't think that's a very good approach. For me to say, stop behaving in a way you can't help. (laughs) Don't you see what's right? Now, I want him to see what's right. There's a lot more room for a little sympathy and compassion. Sometimes, lay down the law. This requires a lot of wisdom and discretion and discernment about the particular person and the particular situation. And uh, This is not, I mean, these are not complex principles. They're also not easy to follow and see exactly how to follow in the world. We, we should engage, keep our expectations realistic, preach the gospel. Yeah. Okay. Question. Now I'm done. Question. Is it okay to assassinate Maduro? No. Not for any Christian. But you have all those Christians there that are just totally squashed. Doesn't matter. They can't vote. They do vote, but it doesn't matter. So we have to let them revolt against him. Well, it wouldn't be righteous to kill him for any Christian. 
I didn't say it wouldn't be a good idea for the government of the United States to assassinate Maduro. Maybe it would be, but that's not, that's not for me. Uh, it, I mean, in some cases, it would be right to go to war. And so, yeah, to stand up for the, uh, for, to stand up for innocent victims is a good thing to do. Yeah, I'm changing my mind while I'm talking to you, okay. Tom. <laughs> it, might be, it might be okay for a Christian soldier to follow the order to assassinate that guy. It might be. Just like it might be okay for a Christian soldier, if you think it's okay for Christians to be soldiers, many people don't think that's okay. But I'm not one of those. The, uh, for a Christian soldier to follow the, in order to assassinate Hitler, which seems at this point non-controversial. So, yeah. yeah. But then there was a guy in the Netherlands who assassinated someone and he was <laughs> sentenced to life. Well, <laughs> I, if you're going to engage if, in if that sort guy, of thing. this guy would have ruled. Mm -hmm. If you're going to, if you're, I, first of all, I don't think it would be right if you were just taking it upon yourself. However, uh, even if it, even if there's some just cause, you have to be prepared to accept the consequences. People set out to assassinate Hitler and it got him killed. Very famous Christian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was engaged in a plot to assassinate Hitler and the Nazis hurried up and killed him when the war was over. Two weeks. And if you read his stuff, you'd know he was completely prepared for that. He, he looked like he, he was he accepted to. the consequence. Yeah. Because he had a way out. Yeah. I, I personally like the, the, the way Ray Comfort approaches people. And we were talking about, mm -hmm. you know, Ray Comfort, Ray Comfort is a street evangelist. And most people think they are righteous. Right. Though they are not. So he, he, starts, he starts to ask me, do you think you're a righteous Do you think you're a good person? <laughs> oh, yes, I do. And then how many, how many lies uh, have you told in your life? Okay, a lot, many. So what do you call someone who does lies? A liar, so what are you, a liar? Have you ever stolen something? Yes. What do you call someone? What are you, a thief? No, is it a lying thief? <laughs> yes. by, by your own admission, eh? I'm not judging. You're a liar, you're a thief, you're an adulterer at heart. So what do you think? You end up at Judgment Day, Judgment Day. Uh, if it wasn't for yeah. Jesus, we'd be in a big trouble. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so that's how, how he, he tries to make clear how they are doing in, in front of God. And this is explicit in the scripture. This is, this is one of three uses of the law. Is it, uh, it convicts. Yeah. Yeah. So we know, uh, you know, I, honestly, I think you could just go to the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. Come on. I, I mean, I covet without even knowing. When I want something that doesn't belong to me, I'm coveting. It yeah, doesn't I matter what it is. I that Frankie's So, yeah, this is what we're talking about when we say we preach the law to preach the gospel. If I just leave people with the law, then all I'm going to do is help them rebel. If I don't come around to there's a way. There's a there's a way to cover this problem in Christ, and I just tell people behave yourselves. 
then I just look like an angry religious nut. And in fact, if that's all I ever do, that's all I am. Uh, and uh, the distinction of the Christian faith is it's a faith, not a list of rules. It's a trust in a person, not a trust in my own capacity to obey God's law. And just if you just go through the Ten Commandments, well, and I think Mr. Comfort would start in the middle, you know, with the ones that relate to other people. Yeah. <laughs> and you just, yeah, did you ever steal anything? I suppose there might be a person in the world who hasn't stolen anything yet. But very few. But if you go to lie, no exceptions. Not one. Yeah, sometimes we lie because it seems like it's the least of the bad things we could do. Still, all that tells you is we are stuck in a bad situation. Frankie. I think I think Christianity actually being in the world is like this is a for me I, I think it like process in growing in all areas. Because as a human being we all we all are infected with mistakes and we fail drastically. But um being in the world and, and being around because my brothers are Jehovah Witnesses and my sister mm -hmm. as well, you know. And um, they have a certain way of, of separating you as an uh, not a Jehovah Witness. And and it could be it could be intense because it's like refusing you, you know, but in uh yeah. in not a friendly way, you know. But um sometimes, you know, when I, when I think about it, just as Pastor was telling that we in the world, but we not in the world. But we carry certain, uh, we have affections. And mm -hmm. certain things touches, uh, touches us uh, very deeply. But how we respond to um, overcome the non-Christian attitude, which we still dwells in us as sinners. You know? that's, I think that's, it's, it's a fact of growing. You know, it's just like you go to college and you reach a certain degree, you want to continue to grow. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. And I would, unending I would want to point this out about growing. The way that scripture frames growing is not primarily growing in obedience. In fact, growing in obedience is always the consequence of the growth that the scripture focuses on which is growing in grace. Growing in the knowledge of grace. In other words, I want to more and more realize my place is a place in God's grace. And what happens when a person comprehends grace, and I'm talking about comprehending on more than just a head level, but when, as, as we comprehend God's grace in Christ, our position of security in Christ, our sure and certain future in Christ, this hope of the resurrection, the more I get that in, the more I get that in, uh, the more my behavior becomes obedient. It's 
It's the exact opposite of what the questioner in Romans 6 anticipates. He's not saying, uh, he's not saying, well, since grace lets us off the hook, let's just send our little heads off. Uh, what Paul understands is, if you really understand grace, it reduces sin in your life. It doesn't increase it. It actually transforms your desires. So uh, we grow, and the, at the very heart of that growth is growing in the knowledge of God's grace. Uh, Besides that, God knows our hearts. So uh, people can interpret, interpret our, our thinking or whatever we say sometimes comes out contradictable. But I mean, um, as long as God knows your heart, you know that everything will be all right. If I'm in Christ, everything is all right. This is our starting point. Even when we're engaging culture, when we're doing anything, we begin from a place of complete assurance. And this is the thing we tend to forget is, look, for you, for anyone in the body of Christ, everything is cool. It is totally settled. You can't go wrong. Well, even if you go wrong, you can't go wrong. Even if you die, you will be raised. If you sin, you will be forgiven. You've already been forgiven. If Whatever, your place in Christ is sure and certain. And the beginning place of living the Christian life is that assurance. The Word of God says, if you trust in Christ, you shall be saved. If you believe in Christ, Jesus said it himself, you have passed from death into life and you shall not come into judgment. Uh, so your beginning point is a point of security. Yeah, well, that's the grace we all receive. But uh, Paul makes it also clear in 1 Corinthians 3 um, that you should watch how you build. Eh? Well, of course. So whatever you do, it, it determines the way you and, and all, all I'm adding to that is, no, no, not really adding to that. What I'm saying is, you build on grace. You begin from that. That makes you more obedient, not less. Your, folk, your attention to Christ is transforming. That's where we started. When we see Him, we'll be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. The more I see Him as He is, the more like Him I become. That can happen now. That's what I'm talking about when I say I'm going to pay forward the resurrection life into the present. I see him as he is. I'm, I can't help myself. I'm transformed by that experience. And so I build carefully. I, I don't ignore the rules. I want to know the rules now. Now, when I, before I was born again, if Mr. Comfort came to me and said, you're a liar, you're a thief, you're... Uh, and I'm like, ah, that's a great burden. That's not a burden to me anymore. I've been delivered from the judgment of the law. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. And it turns out I've become more obedient to the law when I'm taken out from under it and given grace. It's a weird thing, but that's how it works. Now I want to do the thing I wanted to rebel against before. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned about, you talked about the starting point from grace and building mm -hmm. from that. 
powerful. There are a few groups of people. One group is people who think they are saved in Christ, and they are. And the other group is people who think they are saved in Christ, and they're not. So, can you speak a bit more about how to be sure that you're not in the former group <laughs> and not in the latter? Yeah. Uh, John 3.16. I might get worried. Mm -hmm. My assurance can be shaken. I might start, if, especially if I'm engaged in some besetting sin, you know, mm -hmm. and the devil sits on my shoulder and says, a Christian wouldn't behave that way. You can't, you can't call yourself a Christian. And how do I respond to that situation? Or how would I respond to somebody who's professing faith in Christ, but does seems clear to me they don't really know what they're talking about. That's a but again the So the how do I is, what do I I think I am saved in Christ, yet right. I'm not. So let's take an example of a Mormon. Just to uh, think of someone. Or someone who we believe is not saved in Christ. But according to them they are convinced. So that that's what I mean. Well, the first thing I'm going to do for that person is pray because I think the situation's impossible. And if I stop and notice for one second, that situation was impossible when it was my situation. It was impossible in your situation, everyone's situation. Nobody is savable. Nobody, nobody is savable. Nobody. The only thing that makes us savable is the work of the Spirit in us. It is always and only a work of God. And so, if I'm dealing with somebody who's, you know, calls themselves a Christian and they're and believes it in their heart, what they what they think of as Christianity is something else altogether. <clears throat> that's not a problem I can solve. And who says that they aren't Christian? Just because, and using your example of the Mormon, you know, um, while I disagree with their tenets, right, if in their heart they've accepted Jesus... Well, and maybe I can't tell, but I think it's impossible to accept the Jesus, the Son of God, Savior, and think of him like Mormons think of him. I I think it's impossible because they deny his divinity. Yeah, I, so, yeah, there's certain things that ha that must be believed to have a genuine Christian faith uh, that someone who's a faithful Mormon yeah, but, but doesn't maybe, believe. But maybe they're not true Mormons; they're more Christian. Well, yeah, and it isn't up to us to judge that. That's possible. Well, I can't make a judgment in the end, but I better make some judgments about what I think their condition is because I need to talk to them. No. Now, I say the same thing to somebody who's been born again for a thousand years or, you know, 50. I haven't met one that's been a thousand. But 
if you've been born again for 50 years already and you're a mature Christian, what you need to hear is an elaboration of the gospel. So in a certain sense, it's what I would say to anyone. But I might need to, uh, well, just think about who I'm talking to. And I might want to think about, well, here's some thinking they have that's kind of operating like, like a blockage. You know, they're, it's not helping them. But I also think, I can't change anyone's heart. So if I'm talking to somebody without talking to God, I'm, well, God will manage even that. But I, you know, I'm, I'm out of order. Yeah, I, I run into that, you know, when I'm down at the dive shop. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of young folks down there. I mean, I had a good friend of mine that I worked with with years come up to me and say, and this happened a few years ago, what is Easter all yeah. about? You know, it was, <laughs> it was Easter holiday, obviously. You know, is and he came up to me and said, what's this Easter all about? Well, 45 minutes later, you know, I'm not sure I gave a great explanation, but at least he knew what I knew. <laughs> yeah. Well, and as soon as you hear the question, you know you know more than he does. <laughs> so, yeah, share. Again, we live, we, we just live in the world. We become the people, we become the people God is making us to be. We trust him with all this, and we start from a place of security. So I can just share, love people. That This is the second part of the I'm going to ask God, but I'm also going to think hard, love that person. Think hard about how to talk to that person. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I don't need to be in a hurry, but there's some urgency. I, I've... I'm going to think about how to talk to that person. I'll probably make some mistakes. But God is going to use my testimony, maybe. And if he is, I want him to. So I'm going to just do the best I can. And that's that's an example of, let's say, me towards someone else. If I look at it like um, from self perspective, Mm -hmm. I think one, so again, I think I'm saved in Christ, but I'm not. So I think then um, important stuff are prayer, one. Two, continue to better understand his word. Because let's say I'm, I'm, let's say I'm wrong. I think I'm saved, but I'm not. And as I continue to grow and better understand his word, I might see the light. Also, it's very simple. It can't be more simple. It's a simple question. If if someone came to me and they were worried about this, yeah, that's, the first that's thing true. I would say to them is, I don't think you would be worried about this if you weren't actually born again. Yeah. I don't think people who are not saved are worried about whether they're saved. As a general rule, mm. some maybe, in which case I'd say the same thing. Yeah, yeah. But the, I would say, so uh, let's just work it out. Okay, I'm, I, what I just said is not enough. So yeah. let's work it out. I would ask you a question, a very simple question. Uh, 
When you stand before God on Judgment Day, are you relying on anything except the sacrifice of Christ to make you acceptable before God on that day? Is there anything else you are counting on other than that? You're worried because you accidentally slipped and started counting on some other things. But when I put it right to you, your answer is, I got nowhere to go but Jesus. This is how I talk to myself when I start wondering this. I say, yeah, but I got nowhere but Jesus. And when I get there, all I can say is, hey, I'm with Jesus. I can't say anything about how much great preaching I did or anything else I did. It doesn't matter. It doesn't count. It is only the fruit. And so all I can say is, I'm with him. (laughs) And he says, yeah, he's with me. Pastor, it's kind of complicated to, to have a conversation with the witnesses because they, they, they like, you know, they, the Bible, according to, to their Bibles, is, is like all twisted. Well, and it's just like uh, many other groups we might mention. It's just a set of religious yeah. practices. And uh, the thing that distinguishes biblical Christianity is the thing that makes you acceptable before God is not your performance on a set of religious standards. It's not. The thing that makes you acceptable before God is the work of Jesus Christ giving His life and sacrifice for sin, atoning for our sins in the process, bringing us back into fellowship with God. This is where our true humanity lies in fellowship with God. When we have fellowship with God, we bear the image of God in the world. And that's what he's doing on the cross. So according to me, they, they don't they don't um, they don't believe in the Holy Spirit. They don't believe in the Trinity. No. It was kind of complicated for them. By the way, this uh, is a great we gotta stop, but this is a this is a very good uh, demarcation line. If you want to understand one of the one of the principal ways you might discern between uh, false prophecy and genuine Christianity is what do they say about the Trinity? If if they deny the eternal deity of Jesus, that is not Christian. Fundamentally. If he's not the eternal Son of God, he can't be your Savior. Actually, they give you the impression that they understand that Jesus is the Son of, uh, the Son of God. Yeah, but, but they don't mean uh, what like, you mean. Like, yeah, yeah, because they, they, they say that Jesus, impossible that Jesus could be God at the same time. Right. So, and so if someone yeah. says that, then you know. 